You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And I am coming to you today from Montecito, California, where it's uh, raining. It's like one of, uh, you know, two days out of the year that it rains here. So it's uh, very exciting for my children and everybody else. But today we have a great show and you're not going to want to miss this. It is about inflation. Okay. But before we get to that, let me remind you, there is a website called wealthformula.com. And that website is where you go if you want to pick up a bunch more resources than outside of just this particular podcast. Obviously, podcasts get plenty of information, but yeah, webinars and asset protection. You got free book downloads. Uh, you got all sorts of stuff there at wealthformula.com. That's also where you can go to sign up for our accredited investor club, okay? Which is important, actually, if I should use that as a, a leeway into the message for today, which is, you know, how are we going to invest with all this inflation out there? Inflation is running at about 6 to 7% right now. Okay, that is, that's significant. In fact, we haven't seen those numbers in about four decades. And on this week's show, a little bit later, we are going to talk to an economist to explain what that means at the macro level and what may potentially be the result. Now, in case you didn't know, I'm not an economist. What do I know? I'm just a dumb surgeon. But I am a professional investor. That's what I am. I don't even practice uh, surgery anymore. I used to be one of those. But I am a professional investor. And the way I see things right now from my level, from my perspective as a professional investor, is a little bit different. Because let me tell you something, if you are investing in real estate with leverage or you have already invested in real estate with leverage, inflation is not really a bad thing. Okay, I know I want to be quiet when I say that because I don't want anybody to get mad at me. But let me explain. What is inflation in the first place? Well, it means that the value of the dollar is going down. It has less buying power. So basically, it's like this... You know, it's like a tax. It's like this silent tax. Like, you know, you were worth, you know, you had a bunch of money in your pocket, but now it's less worth less worth less. You can't buy as much stuff with it, right? So when you think about investing, I know a lot of people are afraid because they're hearing about this kind of stuff. But let me put things in perspective for a second. Let me emphasize to you that if inflation is running at six to seven percent per year and you are in cash, then you have essentially guaranteed losing 6 to 7% per year by sitting on the sidelines. In other words, you should be worried about not investing right now. On the other hand, if you're investing in leveraged real estate, the debt on those assets, that debt on those assets, the mortgages, you know, there's a fixed amount there. They are losing value. In other words, inflation rewards debtors by making the debt worth less right? Think about that for a moment because it's critical. It's critically important to understand how leveraged real estate is such a tremendous hedge against inflation in the right hands, of course, right? I mean, you got to know what you're doing. You're raising rents to keep up with inflation. You might obviously be doing some value add to make them even better. And the money you owe on that building is diminishing in value, 
That's a great deal. Now, obviously, there are other implications to inflation that may not be such a good thing. And if inflation gets too out of control, there are other ramifications that we won't get into here. But most experts don't seem to think that double-digit inflation is likely, however. So, without sounding flip, let me just say to all of you real estate investors, and I will say it to myself, enjoy the ride while it lasts, right? Now, back to the macro level, right? Back to the macro level, not just the individual investor. This week's podcast features an interview with a brilliant professor of economics from WashU, Dr. John Horn. And he's going to talk about inflation from a more, of course, macroeconomic perspective. And understanding this stuff is really important because obviously at the end of the day, this is a personal finance podcast and you need to learn about all of this stuff and how it's going to affect your pocketbook and what you should potentially do next. Of course, no one's going to make that decision for you, but it's good to have all this kind of information and you'll feel better about it. Whether you, you, know, you, you make money or lose money, you'll at least have done it based on uh, thinking. So when we come back, John Horn. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Dr. John Horn, uh, who is a professor of practice in economics at the Olin Business School at the Washington University in St. Louis. Welcome to the show, Dr. Horn. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm eager to have you on the show because I know you have, um, you know, um, you've been talking about the you know, 900 pound gorilla in the room uh, all over the place, which is the the issue of inflation. If you could give me sort of a background on your perspective of, you know, where this economy was, what happened and why we are seeing the inflation that we are right now. Yeah, I would actually go back almost to the 2008-2009 crisis. Um, as we were experiencing that, the Federal Reserve decided to increase the money supply to try to help stimulate the economy so that we wouldn't have a massive or worse recession than we did. And since then, the the money supply has stayed really high. And it's been sort of a conundrum to economists of why inflation hasn't kicked off. Fast forward to you know, 18, 20 months ago when COVID started and uh, again, another crisis happened. The Federal Reserve again decided to try to stimulate the economy with increasing the money supply even further. And I would say, you know, starting this year after the stimulus packages were passed and after the economy started to recover and after people started changing their buying habits, the supply chain crunch happened. All these things sort of started to come together into resulting in the inflation that we see. And the big question right now, I think on everyone's mind is what's going to happen in the next 18 to 24 months? Because frankly, no one knows. I There's a really compelling story that says that inflation is going to go back down to the 2% or maybe even below level that like we sort of historically had. Or I can tell a really good story why it's going to stay 5 6% for the next three or four years until the Federal Reserve decides to use a recession to kill off the inflation. Well, let's, and- let's start with the idea because, you know, Jerome Powell uh, recently came out and uh, said that we should retire the term transitory inflation, yeah. uh, which they were using for a period of time, which uh, uh, gives um, you know gives the public a lot of confidence, I guess, when they're yeah. doing that kind of thing. But you know what is what is he really saying there? I mean, do you feel like he's um, is this a, in his perspective or the Fed's perspective at this point? You know, they they see this as a real problem right now that needs to be dealt with. I believe we have a we have a meeting coming up too, right? A Fed meeting. Yeah. Is it even today? I don't know. But 
<laughs> I'm not sure exactly what it is. I, I think the, in a way it's semantics. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, as like, macroeconomists think in long terms, long time periods. And what the Fed tries to think about is, is this inflation, which is going to be baked in for the next five, 10, 15 years, if we don't do anything, or is this something where the economy is going to fix itself? And the, when the economy fixes itself, they call that transitory. Now to the average person, person that sounds well then it's only going to last for a couple of weeks it didn't and so the fed's trying to scramble to say well that's not exactly what we mean as economists and so they're just dropping the term i think the big riddle that the fed is trying to wrestle with is this idea of is this sort of now baked in the way the economy is going to be going forward of five six percent inflation unless we do something or if we just let the supply chain sort of work itself out, if we let consumer demand sort of go back to where it was, if we let competitive pressures lower or sort of cap wage increases and lower prices as firms start competing again, are we going to see inflation go back down to the, you know, 2%-ish or below level we have historically? So do we need to actively do something to get inflation down or is it just going to go down in the, you know, near future by itself? And that's that, again, is the riddle I don't think they know or anyone knows because there's so many different ways you could play this out that it actually is going to increase and other ways in which you say no this is i mean we're coming off of the pandemic when everyone stopped buying there's been a massive shift from buying services to buying products and when you start buying products all of a sudden that's going to really change supply chain demands and change how you know the crunches that we've seen there if people go back to buying services or say, hey, I bought the new car, I bought the new couch, I bought the new TV, I don't need to buy another one for the next five, 10 years, well, then that sort of, that massive spike in demand we saw is going to sort of fix itself. The supply chain is in some way already starting to ease itself. And most people think it's going to fix itself by, you know, middle end of next year for the most part. So that's what the Fed's trying to look at and say, if those things are already going to sort of fix themselves on their own, do we need to step in? Because if we step in, on top of people already pulling back on their own, we're going to cause another recession and we don't need a third in the last 15 years. Yeah. And, and the other tricky part there is that in my, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, th- I think that one of the, the challenge that I think economists and the Fed have is it's not only just about predicting what's going to happen, assuming no other major catastrophic changes occur, but we're really, you know, reports and maybe the Omicron thing is not as serious. Uh, maybe it won't impact us, but we don't really know. So that yeah. creates an additional layer of not only, okay, what do we do now? What would we do if there was, you know, the if the pandemic was over? But on top of that, we're like, okay, well, we could just be, you know, we could be right back where we were six months ago. And whatever we do now has to take into account that, you know, as well. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, that's the challenge. Exactly. And the, and the thing which makes it even harder is that the pandemic is going to have differential effects around the world. And because global supply chains are still global, that it could look like things are fine in the United States. But if there's, an, you know, if Vietnam goes through a spike and they have to shut down or there's another shutdown on the docks in China or anywhere in the world where we have supply chains, that's going to throw another wrench into that whole system. And that's going to cause another disruptions. So it, as you said, that they have to think not they have to think not just about what do i do in the next couple of months anything they do in the next couple of months is going to have effects over a longer time period you know potentially even a couple of years before they can reverse it and that really is the challenge for the fed is that they can turn on the spigot or turn off the spigot of money supply and change interest rates almost overnight 
how that works through isn't going to be changed in the next week. Uh, and so once you start those changes, it's not that easy to pull them back and get the economy to, to fine tune to the place you want using the policy that they have. And that, you know, that's, again, that's, that's where they're facing how fast do we move and how hard do we move given how long these things are going to happen. You know, one of the, I want to, I want to ask you a very, what I would think is a very elementary question, and I think it's it's worth asking, which is, um, you know, I've, I've just been paying attention to some of the, uh, you know, economists and and uh, over the weekend even, Muhammad Al Arian mentioned that he doesn't see the, uh, you know, even inflation if. Uh, runaway inflation is a real concern, meaning double-digit inflation is highly unlikely. So then the question is, well, gosh, 6 7% inflation still is pretty bad, right? Well, then I see mm-hmm. Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate Paul Krugman, ask the question, well, is, is inflation really bad for poor people? Yeah. And he, he posits a question, which I, I actually think it's an interesting one. If somebody brought up, of course, he got, you know, he got handed it to him on Twitter. But his point was, Okay, so if, as real estate investors, we know that debt is actually, you know, our debt in the form of mortgages, this is actually good for us. We're eroding debt, you know? So in some respects, we're kind of like, hey, this isn't so bad. I mean, all my money's in real estate, and I've got, you know, our group's probably hundreds of millions of dollars in in debt, which is eroding as we speak. Yeah. But his you got point- fixed rates. Right. Fixed rate. Right. Yeah. His point is that- Hey, what about all these people who are not well off in this country? They actually have a lot of debt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So maybe it's not so bad for them. I'm just throwing it out there because it sounds like something that we've just taken for granted. And I'm curious on you what your response is to a, you know, Nobel laureate uh, economist's uh, take on that. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with him. What I would say is that if you think of most of the debt of the lower income population, it's not like a fixed rate mortgage. It's like variable rate on your credit card and a variable rate. If inflation goes up, the variable rate will go up too. So it's what you have to believe is that the the wages that you get as a worker go up faster than the interest rate goes up on paying down. I'm paying off that debt. And if that's true, then yes, you're better off. Um, the question that I sort of doubt is whether employers are going to continue to keep giving people raises greater than the cost of inf- the, the rate of inflation. And at some, at some point that's going to stop. And if prices keep going up or if prices have gone up and you don't get a raise that compensates for that price increase, then you are worse off. And if your debt is mostly held in variable rate sort of structures, you're going to have to pay a higher rate to refinance or to roll it over for the next month or whatever. And that that's where I would say I'm not quite sure. I think, yeah, like if you have a 30-year fixed mortgage, it's great. Inflation's fantastic. Um, you know, if you got like a 2 3% mortgage for the next 25 years, <laughs> inflation goes to 8%, like that's great for you as long as your wages keep up. But that's, I think the variable rate uh, would be the one I'd, I'd have to look more into to see if it really is good. Yeah. You know, so let's let's talk a little bit about the issue of of debt. I'm curious. I mean, obviously, with all of the money supply issues that you talked about before and fiscal stimulus and all that, I mean, there's there's a maybe not the question is really not about debt so much for me, but as much as there's a big government bill um, mm-hmm. that is, you know, on the table right now, uh, which again, you know, a, a big Keynesian uh, stimulus to the economy. And the question is, if you're already running at six, 7% interest, should we be holding off on that? 
The simple answer is yes, that if you pump a lot of more spending into the economy when you've already got a tight economy and inflation is high, that you're going to create more inflation. I think the thing which makes me less in the camp to think it's going to be a bad thing for inflation is that a, a fair bit of this, uh, of the funding and the spending is spread over 10 years. And so it's not like it's all going to come in the next 12 months. It's not a big dump. Like the stimulus checks and the COVID relief, like that was a one-time crash course, dump money in the economy. The Build Back Better plan is let's spread it out over 10 years. And so the impact in any one year is going to be different. I think if you look at some of the policies in there about uh, sort of like subsidizing childcare or child tax credits, those are intended not to say go out and buy a new TV or buy a new car. It's to say you can now afford childcare so you can go work. And if it does lead to people going out and working, then that's going to drive more output in the economy, which is going to soak up some of that pricing pressure. And so you wouldn't necessarily see it. I, you know, if, if people took all those, you know, child, child tax credits and all the childcare spending and just, you know, paid for someone else to watch their kid and they stayed home, then yeah, I, that's, that's not going to help. But I think the, if it does lead to more people entering the workforce, and that has been one of the challenges with COVID, a lot of people left and couldn't go back because of childcare. If that happened, then you see a lot of supply increase at the same time, which would sort of mitigate that that pricing pressure. So, yeah, and, and this was a question actually I, I um, heard uh, Arian from Allianz talk about a little bit. And I think his point was similar to what you're saying, but just, you know, just to get some more clarity on, on sort of understanding the difference between, you know, growth in an economy nominal growth and, mm-hmm. you know, real GDP. I mean, it is, that's basically what you're talking about, right? When you talk about how, how the, this build back better, really the idea might be that we're, you know, we're actually able to, you know, we're actually stimulating real GDP. Uh, and that's a different thing. Is that? Yeah. The simple way to think about it is if, if I have a lot of people going out and saying, I want to buy more stuff, um, shirts, clothes, TVs, you, you name it. I want to buy more stuff. And the producers say, I can't produce anything more. Like I'm, I'm literally at the max of what I can produce. The only thing that can happen is prices go up to sort of see who's willing to pay the most for those things. If people go out and say, I want to buy more stuff. And at the same time, producers are like, yeah, and we can produce more stuff. Then they'll produce more stuff to satisfy the increased demand, you wouldn't see as much pricing pressure. So if the economy is stimulated to on the supply side, this, this was sort of the supply side of your argument is if you can, if you can stimulate the supply side of the economy, then you're going to actually have more output and you wouldn't necessarily have to see the same increase in prices because that's that extra supply that you're providing to the economy is what is being soaked up by the extra demand that you see. And the argument now is you've got all this excess demand that people are out consuming and the supply chain crunch and the producers saying, I can't get, you know, I can't hire workers. I'll, you know, I, there's no one to actually produces stuff means we have less supply, less supply with more demand means prices have to go somewhere. And the only way they go is up. So I think to me, it's the, are you going to stimulate and actually produce more stuff? Cause if you are, then that's going to sort of accommodate some of that pricing pressure and, and reduce it. You've talked a little bit. I think um, I heard you mentioning something about inflation sort of developing into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Will you talk about yep. that? Yeah, one of the things that we that's really interesting about inflation is that this idea of expected inflation that once the workers in particular sort of believe that inflation is going to happen and is going to be stay and and lenders and other also, you know, we talked about debt before. If I'm going to lend you money but I think inflation is going to be 5%, then I want to increase the rate I charge you by 5% to compensate for the fact that you're going to pay me back with less. 
And once we all believe that, yeah, inflation is going to be five, six percent forever, then I'm going to ask for a five percent wage increase. You as the lender are going to ask for five percent higher interest rate. Everyone's going to ask for that five percent increase, which means when we look back, we say, oh, wait, everyone did get a five percent increase and the prices went up by five percent to pay for all that stuff. Well, then inflation is five percent. So I need to ask for five percent. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's one of the challenges that the Fed has, and I think this is one of the reasons why Powell's been out there saying, no, it's not transitory, but it's not permanent, but it's like, you know, is they don't want people to start believing that it's going to be five or 6%, because once that happens, it's, it starts to get away from the Fed to be able to sort of tweak that level. And the only way, once it gets baked in, as we believe it's five, six, seven or more percent is to cause a recession to snap everyone out of, oh wait, no, inflation is not here to stay. Let's reset. I'm curious, you know, the, so inflation has not been this high since I think the 1980s. Mm-hmm. When you look at that as an academic, what kinds of parallels do you see? And, you know, ultimately, um, you know, Paul Volcker just had to raise rates, right, to get mm-hmm. us out of there. Is yep. that the only only way out of this scenario ultimately? Or do you, where, where do you lie in, in terms of the camp of what's going on now versus then? And, and if you were in charge... And just mm-hmm. what what do you what do you think we should do? If so, I think what the Fed's trying to do is to slow down some of those extra programs. There's sort of the normal stuff the Fed's been doing for decades about you know buying and selling bonds, government bonds to sort of increase money supply or not. They've been adding other stuff like we'll buy mortgages, we'll buy anything else to buy and sort of keep the markets functioning. I think tailing off that is sort of a good first step. If the markets respond and the economy starts to really slow down, that's sort of a good indication of we don't need to take our foot all the way off the pedal. Let's sort of give it a little more gas. What I would, if I were in charge, I would I would do things slowly because I think any big shock is gonna. I don't think the economy is ready for a shock again. I think the going slow is probably the right thing to do. I still am more in the camp of I think there's enough that's going to change in the next 18, 24 months with the economy in terms of supply chains working out. And, um, you know, hopefully labor markets start to sort of resettle with COVID sort of becoming not a pandemic, but a, you know, endemic to, to the society that will sort of fix some of these things on their own. And so the fed doesn't need to fully step in and get rid of inflation. I, wouldn't be surprised if inflation sort of went down more like to 3%. I, I'm not sure it'll go below the 2% that the Fed likes on its own. But there's there again, there are a lot of things which can happen in terms of demand backing off and supply chains fixing out and global supply chains starting back up and competitive pressures from firms saying, I need to lower price in order to sell stuff. And some of those things I don't think are going away and I think will help to reset us down towards a lower inflation. Um, so I'm not, I'm not in the camp of, I think this is on the runaway level to the double digits. I don't think it's going there. And I'm, I think the, the biggest risk is if it stays at five or 6% through the next 18 or 24 months that it gets baked in of, well, that's just the way the world is now. And then the fed is going to have to step in to reset down to say two to the 2% they want. And they do that through a recession, which hopefully we don't need. The people who are listening to this show are thinking, okay, so what do I do with this? Because it's a little tricky situation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. on the one hand, you know, if you want to guarantee losing money right now, just put it in the bank. Yeah. Right. I mean, then you're, you know, you're losing, uh, you know, maybe you're losing six, 7%, you know, yep. something exactly. like that. <laughs> so, but on the other, on the other hand, you know, there's just this, I think, 
there, there is just a lot of hesitancy from the investor standpoint to actually you know, try to understand what's going on in the economy and, are we, you know, are we on the precipice of some kind of like massive correction, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, you know, we, we're not, I'm not asking you to give financial advice, but how, give us a framework for the individual investor that you think at least to understand the macroeconomic picture, inflation, and, and how it would affect you as an individual investor and what types of things you should take into consideration. For me, if I were going to sort of sit down and, and help someone think through that, I, I would, instead of just look at the big picture, what's going to happen to inflation, I would, I would sort of get a little more detailed into what are the types of investments you're looking at. Yeah. So if you are looking at sort of long-term fixed rate um, uh, real estate, I would be, you know, if you can still lock in a low rate right now, you're probably fine. If you start to see that the banks are starting to get, you know, higher interest rates because of inflation, I'd be nervous because if you lock in a, you know, six, 7% rate and then inflation goes down to 2% in a couple of years or 18 months, you've got that rate locked in. And unless you can refinance it, you're, you know, you're, you're not in a good position. I think, you know, investing in the stock market, I would look to see which are the, you know, what types of stocks, what type of uh, investments are you thinking of making? What are the industries? Are they hurt by inflation? Are they sort of, doesn't matter what inflation is, they sort of get compensated. Um, I, 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 I want, so it's not like micro analysis, but it's like one level down from just a macro of, a, of inflation's good or bad. Like really think about as I look at this inf- investment, what if inflation does stay at five or six percent? Is this still going to be a good uh, investment? And if inflation goes back down to two percent in two years, am I going to be in trouble? And if the latter, I would say I I may I necessarily stay away, but I'd think twice about it because I think there is a good story where it goes back down to two three percent in the next 18, 24 months. It doesn't mean it will, but if you think that I'm protected whether inflation goes up, stays the same, or goes down for the most part, then eh, probably not that much of a risk in terms of inflation on that investment. You know, the one thing that people don't seem to be talking about quite as much because the focus is on uh, inflation is debt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is an interesting thing that we've been kind of talking a little bit on the show. We had, you know, one guy who's a a very well-known investor who's done very well, um, who is convinced that the future is uh, modern monetary theory, Mm -hmm. and uh, which is essentially, you know, debt doesn't matter anymore, right? Right. That it's really like his, this theory being that, okay, this is all like, you know, enterprise value of individual nations and, you know, it, it, it's basically monopoly money and, you know, you yep. don't, what, what do you think? How does this debt problem does, how, how does this declare itself? What are the different things that, and scenarios that you can see and in what time frame? I'm not as worried about like the federal debt, about three quarters of the debt of the U S government is owned by U S citizens. So we sort of are owing it to ourselves and, you know, Japan has their, our debt to GDP ratio is a little over a hundred now. So we're, we essentially, the debt of the U S government is essentially what we produce in a given year. Japan is over 200 and they haven't defaulted and they're not in crisis, you know, to the point where everyone's like, you know, they're a mess of an economy. They're not growing six, 7%, but they're not a, a, a basket case. And I think 
to me, I look at that and say, we don't know. Like, we really don't know at what level does the world say, you know what, now the U.S. has too much debt and we don't want to buy it anymore. I think for as long as the U.S. is sort of seen as the safest haven of economies of the world. The least ugly still- economy in the world. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, at least right now. Right. You know, it's, it's going to be hard to see that the value of that right. debt collapsing. I, for me, it's... Um, I think as long as the interest rates on the debt are below what we think that the economy could grow and sort of pay it back off in the future, then people are going to say, ah, there's a way in which this isn't going to matter in the long run. I don't believe monetary, the MMT is going to work. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a believer in that because essentially, I mean, look at the, you know, angst and confusion that's happened over the five or 6% inflation that's happening right now. The MMT essentially would like try triple quadruple that amount of money and like inflation would go through the roof. And I, like, I don't see how people would be like, Oh yeah, that's fine. Cause the debt doesn't matter. Inflation's okay. Uh, you know, historically five or six percent inflation, we're used to 2% or one and a half, 2%. And so this looks like enormously awful I, with MMT it would just go even worse. And I don't see how that's going to really um, fly at least as a long-term strategy. Right. And that's sort of what MMT is to me is like, well, forever, we're just going to have this massive, you know, funding of the debt through just printing more money. That's just going to lead to even more inflation. Interesting stuff. So one last question, yeah. obviously, you know, politics are kind of crazy today, you know, as polarized as they've been uh, since before I was born at least. Um, yeah. And how is that going to, or in, how is it affecting the decisions that we're making specifically as it relates to say inflation um, and, and policies to, to deal with, you know, the, the issues that we have? I think so. The simple answer is that most of the inflation, at least longer term, midterm, long term inflation is driven by the Federal Reserve and their choices. And for the most part, they insulate themselves relatively well from what goes on in Congress and the White House. So in that sense, I'm not as concerned that the Fed is going to say, well, that's what Congress wants us to do or that's what the White House wants us to do. So let's accommodate it. Um, so I'm less worried about that. I think where I'd be, where I, I think there's still some concern is that to the extent that if we, you know, if, if the Democrats are able to successfully get the, uh, build back better plan pushed through, and if for some reason they hold on to the house and the Senate, uh, in 2022, do they see that as, well, let's have even more spending, have more plans. Or if the Republicans take control in 2024 and say, let's, cut taxes again, um, deficit, you know, have deficit spending that way. I think what's, what's concerning to me is the lack of willingness to talk with each other about how you fix long-term debt and how you fix social security and Medicare for the long-term, because it's going to need compromise on both sides. And that's a word, which is not, not the most popular these days. And I think that's, that's the part that worries me is that neither side can fix it on their own. Um, it needs both sides agreeing to it. And I, that's what worries me. Good stuff, Dr. John Horn, everybody. Uh, John, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. How can we follow you and get some of the uh, information that you're putting out there? I uh, I actually don't use Twitter that much. Um, I do have um, uh, I do have a Twitter handle, um, but I don't use it that much. <laughs> um, I uh, yeah, I mean, I I just I. I like talking to people, you know, like you about these things. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, talking to myself. So, well, um, <laughs> well, we'll we'll love to have you on again uh, in sure. the you know, coming helpful, months. Please do. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Thanks again. We'll be right Thank back. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I am totally fascinated by this topic, and it's just so interesting to see history kind of you know take place and trying to figure out what to do next. But 
as an investor, you know, all I can say right now is inflation may not be such a bad thing, right? So think about that as you're worried about investing in a inflationary environment. You're actually probably better off investing. So that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.